Welcome to the Real News Network, and reality asserts itself. I'm Paul Jay. Matthew Fox is a former Catholic priest who was first stopped from teaching liberation theology and creation spirituality by Cardinal Ratzinger, and then expelled in 1993 from the Dominican order to which he had belonged for 34 years. Matthew was the author of over three dozen books, including Letters to Pope Francis, Rebuilding a Church with Justice and Compassion, Occupy Spirituality, a Radical Vision for a New Generation, and The Pope's War, Why Ratzinger's Secret Crusade Has Imperiled the Church and How It Can Be Saved. He currently serves as an Episcopal priest and lives in California. There's a fight going on within the Catholic Church focused on the scandal of pedophilia and the criminal cover-up of such by the Church hierarchy. Matthew Fox believes this is a malignant symptom of a rot that goes deep within the Church something he says Pope Francis has not taken strong enough action to purge. There's also a struggle against Francis, who has taken what amounts to a social democratic position on wealth inequality and the need for urgent action on climate change. This has infuriated the far right of the church, especially the fascist Opus Dei, who would like to see Francis gone. In this episode of Reality Asserts Itself, we'll explore these and other issues with Matthew Fox, and he now joins us in Berkeley, California. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Good to be with you. So, start with growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. You were born in 1940, I understand. And uh, take us through some of the story of how you choose to become a priest. Mm -hmm. Well, I grew up in a family of seven children. I was in the middle. Uh, they call it the neurotic middle, I guess. Three older and three younger than I. And um, my Parents were interesting uh, people, and they encouraged our creativity and our individuality and thinking for ourselves. What did they do? Well, for example, when I was in high school uh, and my older brothers would go off to college, they'd rent out a, a room to a, a foreign student at the University of Wisconsin. And so I grew up with um, an Indian Sikh next door to me, because his room was next to mine, who was cooking wheat germ at two in the morning, it's really stained, by the way, in his room, and wore the turban and all. And uh, there was a, a Yugoslav communist who, who joined our family for a couple of years. And I remember a Venezuelan who every time he met someone, he'd pull up a shirt to show where he had been gored by a, a bull in a bullfight once. And, um, and uh, so I learned that the world is much more than Catholic and much more than white and much more than Western. And I think that was a marvelous uh, education, a subtle one that our parents gave us to kind of open. What did they do for a living? My father was a football coach in Wisconsin for a number of years. Then he went into business. My mother was, um, was a, a mother of seven children, born within 11 years of each other. But she couldn't wait to leave. <laughs> she was not a super mom. She couldn't wait to get on with her life. Uh, and uh, even when she was raising us, she, she always took two hours off every day for herself, no matter what was going on with the diapers and the kids and everything. She would play tennis or bicycle or uh, she had all kinds of clubs, book clubs and sewing clubs and all. So she, she took care of herself long before the word feminism, she was a feminist. And how religious was the household? Well, my father was an Irish Catholic and he was serious about it because uh, he grew up in a tough uh, situation in the Irish ghetto of Chicago. He remembers as a boy seeing signs, uh, work available, Irish do not apply. He was very angry 
young man, and that's how he got into football. He took his anger out on, in football, and he was a good football player. Then he got a football scholarship there, and when his family, he went to college. And um, my mother was actually half Jewish and half uh, uh, Episcopalian, although her mother became Christian, who was Jewish, became Christian when she married. So she was not raised Jewish, but um, she was raised Episcopalian. But she decided on her own after a year or two of marriage to my father to become Catholic because she didn't want a split, a split family. But she never told them, which is so typical of them. So she did these, she took, she took um, instructions on the sly, secretly, without telling my father. And of course, she'd go to Mass on Sunday with my father and we'd just sit in the pew during communion. So this one Sunday, she gets up to go to communion because she's now a Catholic, but she didn't even tell him. So they have this fight in the aisle of, of church at communion time. My father's like, you can't go to communion, you're not a Catholic. Yes, I am. No, there's other fighting. I think this is kind of an archetypal story of, of them. Uh, he was, he was um, Scorpio and she was Taurus, so there wasn't a lot of compromise there. But they were a, a very alive couple. <laughs> and what were the politics of the household? <laughs> Split down the middle. My, my mother was a Democrat, my father was a Republican. We used to tell them, why do you bother to vote? You're just canceling each other's votes out. So that's how that was. But What kind of Democrat? All became, well, like she voted for Kennedy and he voted for Nixon back then and then he voted for Nixon again, and then regretted it with Watergate and everything. He, you know, of course, he was older then, but he kind of, he kind of shut up about Republican politics after Watergate. And as you sort of start becoming conscious of politics and mm -hmm. stuff, uh, where do you fall? Well, the whole family fell, fell with my mother to the left, except my one brother who went to West Point. Of course, I, when I was studying as a Dominican and so forth, I, um, I was exposed to, especially when I went to Paris to study, I was very much exposed to the Marxist um, uh, way of seeing the world. And um, uh, this was a big part of my education. And of course, that American liberation theology and so forth that was going on in the late 60s. In fact, I studied with Pere Chenu, who many people would credit with being kind of the grandfather of uh, liberation theology, because he comes out of the... Um, worker priest movement in France after the war. So he was working with the Marxist unions. That's what the worker priests were doing. And he was the leader because he was the most um, educated. He was an intellectual a theologian. He was silenced by Pope Pius XII for 12 years. And he was my mentor. He's the one who named the creation spiritual tradition for me in my studies in Paris. And um, actually it was uh, Thomas Merton, the Catholic monk, who, by the way, has just been proven, was murdered by the CIA in 1968 in Thailand. I, I knew that already, but now there's a whole book about it called The Martyrdom of Thomas Merton. He's the one who sent me to Paris to study. I asked him, where's the best place to go to get a doctorate in spirituality? And he said, go to Paris. And that's where I met Chanu, my, my mentor. And he comes out of the, the, um, the worker-priest movement and, and liberation theology because what he, he would go to these uh, union meetings in Paris in the 40s and 50s, and he'd be in the back, and, and at the end of the meeting, the head guy would say, well, Perchenu, what would you hear us talk about? So he would just give feedback. And that's really the basic methodology of, um, of base communities and so forth, is you know, to listen to the people and to feedback what you're hearing. You know. You're sort of come to consciousness, at least politically, uh, right in the midst of the Cold War. Uh, McCarthyism, uh, a pledge, oh, yeah. pledge of allegiance to, yeah. the, 
to the flag, uh, the enormous anti-communism, anti-socialism, anti-leftism. How much does that influence and pervade your life? Well, and of course the, the civil rights movement too, beginning in the late 50s, was certainly part of my generation too. But yeah, I remember going, when I was a kid, we had just gotten TV. We were the last ones in the neighborhood to have a TV. And the Army McCarthy hearings were on all day. And I would run home uh, for lunch to see as much of this as I could see. I was very, and I, I have these deja vu experiences now when I watch the Trump thing going on, you know. And of course, Trump is directly related to McCarthy by way of Cohn, Rory Cohn. He was on TV with McCarthy. It's very sinister. Even then, he was a sinister lawyer uh, coaching McCarthy. So, you know, there's a real link there. But um, I found all that very fascinating. And then, of course, like I say, the civil rights movement, of course. But how much, if any, do you internalize of this kind of Americanism? Well, of course, even then, I was, even though I was like 12 or 13, I was beginning to wake up and say, you know, who is it? Because McCarthy was from Wisconsin, and I was from Wisconsin. And he was a Catholic, supposedly. And so I was really questioning, what is all this stuff, you know? But then I began to learn pretty fast that there are different versions of being a Catholic and, uh, and of being uh, from Wisconsin. <laughs> you, you're in high school. And uh -huh. you... Went to public high school, and my friends were um, Jewish or Protestant or agnostic, so we'd have these great debates, philosophical debates about life and all. And I would go to my parish priest, who was Dominican, and he would kind of... Give me, he would give me books or tell me to read Chesterton or to read Thomas Aquinas and stuff. And I liked that intellectual side to um, arguing about issues. And that was, that, uh, that's one way where joining the Dominicans that appealed to me because they had this tradition. Um, people like Perishanu, but also Aquinas, and as I discovered later, Meister Eckhart and some other really thinking people. So, if I understand it correctly, you, you really get serious about joining institutionally in 1960, is that right? Yes. Well, when I graduated from high school in 58, I decided, I went on a retreat my, la my senior year in high school to the Dominican House of Studies in Dubuque, and I was very moved by three things. One was the intellectual life, the other was the community life, and I, of course I'd come from a big family anyway, and the third was the aesthetic of seeing these semi-monks, semi kind of, half-monk, um, chanting the, the, the psalms and, in Latin and all that. And I, just, I just felt that in my heart, that there's something powerful. So I thought I would give them a try. So um, I, in 1958, actually, I, when I went to college, it was in Dubuque, and it, the, the Dominican order at that time uh, ha had young men who were interested living together and kind of uh, learning more about the order while going to a, a regular liberal arts Catholic college and participating that way. So that's how it began. And then two years later, then you joined the novitiate, which was uh, a more rigorous um, baptism, if you will, into the order. So, so the philosophical debate, mm -hmm. um, the intellectual pursuit, mm -hmm. you can do all that without being a priest, without making the sort of sac, at least what non-priests think are sacrifices. I don't know, maybe priests don't, I don't know. But, you know, not getting married, not being celibate, all the mm -hmm. discipline, especially, you know, having to do what you're told by the, ch by the church. Uh, why take that path? Uh -huh. Well, 
at that time, things were opening up. Pope Pius died in 1958, and Pope John XXII came in, and then he launched the Vatican Council. And um, that became very exciting theologically and otherwise in the church because it really let a lot of new voices in. And, and old voices heard, for example, my mentor, Pierre Chenu, who had been science for 12 years, in, for 12 years, in the Vatican Council, he became as a Paredes from with a third world bishop. A Paredes is kind of a, the theologian who accompanies the bishop. But it was the third world bishop who, who invited him to be his Paredes. And Chenu really was responsible for the most radical document called The Church in the Modern World that came out of the Second Vatican Council. So um, all this was happening at the time that I was in the seminary, and it was, you know, quite exhilarating, really, and, and a lot of uh, people felt that way, a lot of new uh, priests and so forth. And, of course, in the order, there was this 700-year tradition, which included meditation and, and study, serious study. I mean, we, for, for ethics, for example, we were studying Aristotle and Aquinas' commentary on Aristotle, which is really interesting because it's not about rules, it's not about commandments, it's about virtues. That's how um, Aristotle sets up uh, ethics, about virtues of courage and magnanimity. I always remember reading Aquinas on magnanimity when I was a, what, 20-year-old or something. It was powerful to me. It's still powerful today. It's good stuff. It's not about rules. It's about developing inner strength, which we call virtues, habit, good habits. And there was room for that then in the church? There was room for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there was. Yeah. Yeah. Because other, you know, you're getting into the 60s. A lot of people are doing this kind of spiritual, uh, philosophical exploration mm -hmm. as part of counterculture, youth mm -hmm. culture, yeah. um, whether it's Buddha or various other uh, explorations, yeah. Yeah. Um, but you pick a very serious discipline. Well, that's true. And um, why do you feel? Why was that necessary for you to do the exploration? Well, I enjoyed studying, and I, I liked a challenge. I, I, I enjoyed sports, and I, I felt there was this um, this challenge to kind of grow, grow intellectually, and grow. Uh, psychologically, if you will, to mature. I just found it interesting. And then going to Paris, I landed in 67. So I was there for 68 when the huge events happened. They brought de Gaulle's government down and Cohn Bendy and all the Marxism and everything. And my, I made good friends with um, young Dominicans who were studying Marx and theology in, in Munster with Johannes Metz, who called himself a political theologian, and people from Spain and from, and of course, my, my closest friend actually was from Spain, and he was, he was involved with the, with the overthrow of Franco. In fact, he was on the first government after Franco was socialist. He was a cabinet minister. Uh, he had left the Dominicans by then, and he, he was like the cultural minister or something, because he, he had a, a price on him. When he was studying in Munster, getting a doctorate in theology, political theology, uh, Franco's men tried to uh, kill him. And he had to sneak back into his country to visit his family. He was very, from a very poor village. He used to say at, the big deal in the village was Saturday. They, they had the one television set in the middle of the village to watch the, the, bull, the, the bullfight. That was the big, big thing going on in the village back then. But uh, he was an amazing guy. He's a professor now at a university. But um, uh, so there was a lot of, of vivacity, a lot of life going on. And the young Dominicans in 
Europe, we all got together for a, a big event for a week or so to, to criticize the order and criticize the church. And I was involved in that. In fact, they elected me the head person at the end. I gave a speech that I guess people liked, but also it was partly political because I was outside some of the intra-Nicene fights of, of the Europeans. But um, all that was very, um, very much part of my, my education, my awakening, I think. If studying Marx and engaging with Marxists in Paris is part of the awakening, that doesn't necessarily lead to 34 years in the church. Uh, how, do you, how did the ideas of Marx jive with the ideas of, of your version of Catholicism? Well, of course, um, Catholicism has, has lived for about 2,000 years, and so it's covered a lot of, of history, and there's a lot of history there. And so... Um, the, the early church uh, lived in many ways a, a life of sharing, and in, in many ways you might even call it a, a Marxist view of the world. Um, and monasticism, too, is about sharing. The vow of poverty is about everyone having equal opportunities and so forth. So there's a lot of um, kind of hidden uh, wisdom within the monastic tradition, I think, about community life. And community means equality. And, uh, you know, obviously this gets um, poisoned at times, but, um, but it's there. So that's the thing about Catholicism. It, it, it has an incredibly rich and diverse um, uh, lineage if you start taking apart. And then, for example, e each order has its own charism. There's the Jesuits and, and growing out of the 16th century Reformation time. But the Dominicans, of course, were a response, as were the Franciscans, they grew up at the same time, to the corruption of monasticism, because monasticism had become too successful under feudalism. And so uh, that's where Francis and Dominic both broke really violently with it in the early 13th century, and a new, when, a new kind, when capitalism displaced feudalism. And um, the vow of poverty under the of Dominicans and Franciscans was really a, an effort to resist feudal um, uh, privilege and, and monastic privilege and to be with the poor, etc. So, you know, there's an amazing, amazing history there. And, um, uh, and then, of course, later I discovered Meister Eckhart, who's my favorite mystic. He was a Dominican and condemned by the, by the Vatican a week after he died. But Ernst Bloch, the Marxist philosopher, says that Eckhart was a big influence on Karl Marx. Why? Well, he said that he critiqued the having neurosis better than anyone who's ever lived. No, Eric Fromm said that, that Eckhart uh, critiqued the having neurosis. But Ernst Bloch says that, that Marx was really influenced by, by Eckhart because Eckhart's mysticism was not about escaping the world or flying off someplace. It was about staying in the world and struggling for justice. And uh, Eckhart was very involved in the women's movement, the Beguin movement of the Middle Ages, and the peasant movement. He was, he was the first theologian to preach in the peasant dialect language to the poor. And at his trial, we discovered the transcripts in the late 19th century. At his trial, they said to him, why are you preaching to the poor in their own language, telling them that they're all divine, that they hold this power? And, and, you know, and they said, you know, if you'd preach like others in Latin, we'd let you go. Because, you know, this wouldn't disturb the, young, the, the poor people. They don't know Latin. Did, did Eckhart say, oh, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again? This is what he said. 
He said, the poor need to learn. And if they do not, they will never know how to live or why to die. Ten years after he said that, the peasant wars broke out in Germany. And tens of thousands of peasants were murdered. So he was aware of the, of the growing gap between have and have-nots. And he tried to do something about it by supporting the have-nots, giving them their dignity back. And, um, and that's why he was condemned, that and his support of the women's movement, the Big E movement. So it's highly political, and yet he was so deep in his mysticism that he, in many ways he was very, very Buddhist. I've written about that. Eckhart was, was very Buddhist. In the next segment of our interview, we'll continue uh, the story of Matthew's journey, which leads him not too much longer into a direct confrontation with a, what many people think is a pretty much feudal hierarchy within the Catholic Church. Join us for that on Reality Asserts Itself on the Real News Network.